Sometimes we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Lar Redmond. Hello and happy June. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and I am your host, Lar Redmond, and I'm excited today. We're going to be talking about leadership, empowerment, um, how those two things go together with our story, each of our stories, and I feel pretty stoked. I ended up getting this incredible leader on our show today named Toby Fitch, who I'm going to introduce in a moment, and I'm so excited to have this hour with Toby just to learn new skills in the world of leadership, business, strategy, how to be in this world, not only making a living, whatever that means anymore, but to be empowered as we go through the world with our organizational work lives, and then maybe how that sort of bleeds into our personal lives in a perfect setting, because I don't think they're separable. Um, We're going to go from the point of view that to live your own empowered life, you need to find out what's happening on the inside in order to present on the outside. Toby Fitch, he has clients that include Apple, Facebook, Google, Nike, and many others. He works at the intersection of strategy, story, and organizational performance, helping leaders and their teams envision the future, tackle hard challenges, and develop core competencies. So help us out today, Toby Fitch. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. You know, I've I've often wondered about how you work with these organizations because when I see the names Apple, Facebook, Google, Nike, we know these companies are, you know, monstrosities and they include lots and lots and lots of people. So I want to just open today by asking you what it's like to go into these organizations and help people become better leaders. Uh, it's wonderful. And at times intimidating, Laura. So, you know, I had the benefit without intending to of working inside some of these large organizations for some years. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I I grew up the son of a socialist newspaper editor. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, My mom, who we'll come back and talk about because I think there's great lessons about leadership from Marion Fitch. Uh, But I didn't think I'd be in a big organization. They seemed very foreign to me. Corporations, you know as a, the corporate life. Um, <laughs> but I found, I ended up finding really wonderful people I could learn a lot from uh, and followed those people into big organizations, which made them, of course, not mysterious because you're in the middle and you kind of get a sense of the the potential and goodness and community that's there, as well as the challenges of big organizations that are you know, often not that coordinated and then sort of stumble over themselves internally. So um, the question about finding 
you know, how to help leaders in these organizations. Part of it's going like any, like small organizations as well, going, where's the interest? Who's trying to make a shift in their life or help the people around them? Kind of like the mission of your show, you know, who's, who's trying to actually help people to be empowered and how do you help them do that better? And is that, I mean, when I hear you say that back to me, it feels so good to hear it because that really is the goal of this show. And the word that comes up is integrated, like how to become integrated in life, whether you're at work or whether you're at home or whether you're with your, you know, friends or people that you have to interface with that maybe aren't friends, but you're with them every day. And so to have an integrated approach to life feels very powerful and magical to me as a goal and an idea. It sure is. I mean, and it's um, <laughs> like so many things that have a lot of wisdom to them. They they sound simple and then they are our life's work, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's trying to live an integrated life, whether you're inside an organization or on your own, um, involves so much of the same work about the self-reflection and kind of the therapeutic side of making sure that what we're bringing to the party, we're clear about, uh, you know, both our fears and our strengths. Um, and then being able to connect with others and get something accomplished together. Toby, would you call that spiritual? Uh, yeah, I would, of course. I mean, I, uh, but I've got a pretty broad definition of spiritual, right? Um, that if we, if part of our own personal mission of being here on earth is to be in touch with ourselves, understand ourselves better, try to connect in authentic ways with other people, um, it's both spiritual and practical, right? That um, makes our life worth living. And when you think of the word spiritual as you would define it, what would you say is your first memory of having an individualized spiritual experience where you knew something was going on within that wasn't pragmatic or coming from a learned place that would be a textbook understanding, but a more energetic understanding. What's your first memory of that? Well, as, as uh, you asked the question, the things that come to mind are initially just memories of love and connection of uh, uh, moments of unconditional love that might have happened in beautiful natural places like the the back pasture of the place where I grew up on this island in Puget Sound um, of maybe my grandfather's touch uh, walking in the fields or time with my mother out hunting mushrooms or uh, doing something in nature. So that combination, I suppose, initially of love and nature. Um, and then Apart from that, the other real memories of sense of spirituality was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty liberal place with a very Unitarian, Universalist, sort of Buddhist-leaning mother, uh, and ended up in this very eclectic um, youth group that was non-denominational, where uh, kids from 
probably like age 11 or 12 up through 20 could come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy who led it happened to be a, it was a very liberal Presbyterian minister. Um, I realized years later, years later, when I was working at Apple and doing work with Stanford people on therapy and tea groups, that he was running a tea group with us as teens mm-hmm. and creating this space where uh, people could support each other, sing songs to each other, sit in a circle. Uh, kids came out of the closet. This was 1974. That was early for that. And a, there was a sense of sp- the spirituality of community and of shared purpose in trying to support each other in the confusion of being human. Mm. What do you mean by tea group? Well, <laughs> I'm sure that I could define it. If there are if there are actual PhD, uh, you know, uh, organization development or psychotherapists listening, I may get the definition wrong. But um, tea group meant short for therapy group, and it was a process that folks put together um, to get adults in an organizational context to sit down and, and uh, talk about their actual interactions and feelings and reactions to each other in a facilitated way. Uh, so it was a way of slowing down conversations and getting deeper um, and getting people to actually talk about how they experience each other and not just what they hear each other saying. Um which with the right kind of facilitation and the right set of group, there can be a lot of learning and uh, content about how people are showing up and uh, their conscious and unconscious feelings and how those manifest in conversation. Uh, I was aware of none of this as a, you know, sort of pubescent boy in this circle. I just thought, wow, we have these amazing conversations and this is such a caring group and uh, this must be, part of the transcendental sense of connecting with the universe that you can trust people and have this kind of intimacy and know that you'll be supported. Mm. Yeah, that's the key word, supported. And when you mentioned being safe to come out sexually in a group like that in the 70s, what a lot of the listeners who are younger may not even know is that would have been huge um, in the 70s. You know, these sorts of ideas of speaking your truth, we've learned to do that more. I think it's so hopeful. Um, I think it's where we're all feeling off base right now with the, the leader of our country because we came from this very honest emoting type of presence that Barack provided emotionally, I'm speaking of. And now we're not even sure uh, if what's being said is even true. So I went, I flashed to that when I'm thinking of the idea of a tea group. I was wishing that we could all sit in a room with our current leader and have a tea group meeting and all discuss what's happening energetically as we go through the world right now and find the ground that we're looking for. Because I do think there's a groundlessness that's going on energetically. Yes, there's that. Uh, the image of sitting in a room with uh, <laughs> the the Donald trying to discuss anything real or emotional uh, or of, of essence and energy is uh, that, that's a it's a head spinner right there. Um, I, I guess at times like this one, I'm, as we all are, we're confronted by this uh, very throwback, fear-based, patriarchal, uh, 
uh, ignorant um, view and instead of, you know, gut reactions of someone who lacks confidence, lacks any sense of self-love or love for others. Uh, it's easy to get caught up in the toxicity of that. And, and I, I at least, I guess on the one hand, I'm very thankful I've got memories of community uh, like I experienced in my youth to go back to where uh, diversity was embraced, where the fact that everybody has their own sets of challenges that we can't see on their faces is assumed and you're trying to support each other through that. Um, and I guess it just, it causes me to make sure I'm paying more attention to the people around me now because mm -hmm. that's, that's what is real. Uh, you know, Trump's part of our world, but he's in an outer, in an outer circle. It just keeps, he keeps puncturing through all the circles every day to uh, throw us off base, as you said, but it's the connection and energy of those near us and how we're supporting them that feels like uh, is the thing we can have the most control over. And and I feel opportunity around me in this beautiful way, like I have never experienced in my life with respect to the fact that love has never been more needed. Uh, connection has never felt more vital. And so with that, I feel this just fertile opportunity in my own life and in my worlds to spread the love, create the community, find the language, do this show, bring people on like you. Like, I think we are all rising at a level that is very exciting, very hopeful, and in a way is the best balance beam to create in the face of what's happening that is out of our control. Yes, 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 uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if we're talking broadly about the theme of leadership, uh, at, and and what is it, and how do we show up that way when we feel like I can't lead anybody anywhere, right? The, the ultimate truth that nobody knows what they're doing, we're all improvising our lives every day anyway, it is true. And at the same time, the kind of core essence of leadership is committing to show up in a positive way, right? Like you committing to do the show and focus on things that are right and working and uh, help people notice how they are and can empower themselves to do things. There's so much capacity uh, in that kind of essential daily leadership feels like it's showing up, noticing noticing what's possible, committing to focus on something you can do positively and not collapsing in on ourselves. Yeah. For sure. So, Toby, what do you do in these environments with these companies when you're in this position to teach strategy, leadership, organizational skills, and you confront a huge ego in that space that is not able to even understand the language of vulnerability, um, accountability, honesty, like help us as listeners here with some ideas when we are in those moments of life where there's not that integration, what would be a, a way that you would guide someone in that space to develop that skill when they are just sort of numb to it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I show up as a consultant and coach. Uh, everybody shows up as a, another human in a, you know, whether you're working at a nonprofit or you're you know, in an organization with somebody else. 
uh, I guess the first thing we always try to scan for is, is the person open to seeing that there, that there might be other ways to do things? Are they open to any kind of feedback or not? Um, so there, there's a filter there, which is, uh, I think, we have to pay attention to. Um, one of the things as a professional, when I go into a place, as I'm honestly looking at, is this person open to making any change, right? Because if everyone wants to bring them help or get them to change, but they don't want to change, probably it's a non-starter. Um, the, the second thing, though, is that for, for most people, I think we, when there is somebody who's showing up in a way that's not helpful to others or not, uh, you know, empathetic, uh, not empowering those around them, my experience 95% of the time is that they don't get that. They don't know that. And, and that people around them have been, you know, either have brought it up in a way that was defensive and unhelpful or uh, didn't ever bring it up. So the first, I mean, while you're trying to assess out, is this person open or not? The first thing that I try to do, and I try to do as a peer to people and that I try to do as a coach to people say, hey, like, are you open to talking about how things are going and about the impact you're having? Um, and finding ways to say, here's some things you're doing really well. Here's some things that you might not see that are the impact that is actually getting in your way. So uh, trying to appeal to their self-interest, right? Mm. Which is, if your goal is to be really effective, like I've got a, there's a couple of executives I'm coaching right now where they get a ton of stuff done and they've got a big blind side and they leave a wake of people who feel bruised or damaged and won't step up again or won't be, you know, as forthcoming or as engaged on the next time they work together because they thought the person was an ass. And so the first place is to say, are you open to looking at other views of your performance in ways that you might actually not be as effective as you could be? And do you want to be more effective? And how do you want to be seen by others? And so often starting with that, what is the vision you want to have for yourself? Or how do you want to be known? And then exploring ways that how they're known today and how they're showing up today doesn't serve that and may be getting in their way is the first place. Because for any of us, you know, whether it's how you engage with others or whether I go out and exercise this morning, it all starts with, are you satisfied with how things are today or are you truly motivated to change anything? Mm. Oh, that's so helpful to think about. And I, I don't want to lose sight that you referred to your mother twice. So how did, how did she help you learn that, for example? Where, where was that empowered message that you said you received very much from your mother, Miriam Fitch? Marion. Marion. And yeah, Marion. Um, I mean, uh, I just had the incredible good fortune to be born as the uh, only, and, and, and bastard, by the way, only, people call me a bastard sometimes, I say it's technically correct, I was, you know, child born out of wedlock, my parents never got married, and my dad left my mother as a 40-year-old woman, uh, mm -hmm. pregnant, pregnant with her first child. Wow. Uh, so I had this mother who was already really smart, lived life her own way, you know, had been a Rosie the Riveter, had been a labor organizer, you know, socialist in Seattle, organizing the Waitresses Union and the Bummerman's Union. And 
um, had had a woman lover and had many men lovers and um, had already chosen to live on this island and edit a newspaper and dig clams and go fishing when she wanted to and have her own cows and men fences and that kind of thing. So I, I had this person who had lots of qualities uh, archetypally of both male and female um, and was just always so empowered. Uh, you know, I like to say that people's people's weaknesses are gr- grounded usually in the overuse of their strengths. We could come back to that as well. I think that's a truth that is worth paying attention to. Yeah. Uh, and my mother was, you know, so direct and outspoken and did her own thing her own way that I had just had this powerful role model, um, which in many ways actually later in life set me up for kind of unrealistic expectations. I think of other people and sometimes, um, because I didn't have a lot of empathy for people who couldn't speak their mind or couldn't quickly analyze something intellectually, right? Or uh, couldn't like jump from running a community council meeting to fixing a broken sink. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, so I, I just took a lot of lessons from her and on the side of spirituality uh, to be with someone who had such a, was such an existentialist at a transcendental sense of things would be the person called upon to write the memorial, you know, when people died at, um, cause she could encapsulate someone's life so beautifully and hold the question of, uh, you know, knowing there it's something that interconnects all of us, that all living beings are interconnected by some, uh, by some thread, by some spirit, but who was definitely in, anti-religious about it, right? Um, Use the word God in a way that it was a very universal and universalist way of thinking about an energy that connects us. Um, so that's a rambling answer to the question, but I think... No, the, it's a great... I, I, she sounds phenomenal. Is she still alive? She is not. She lived a, a full and complete life and died at 88 about eight years ago. Um, and, you know went peacefully, you know, went gently into that good night uh, with some dementia, which was hard to watch somebody with a, so much independence and a big brain go into that state, but was uh, was able to die peacefully and pretty happily within a couple miles of the house she'd lived in since 1947. Wow. What a story. What a beautiful story of a person with such great impact. And and when you said that, I want you to go back to that comment you made that was such an important kernel in the conversation about the curse and the blessing. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, one of my mentors early on pointed this out in me and uh, in terms of leadership coaching that when you look at people's uh, weaknesses and challenges professionally and how we engage with each other, that uh, it's almost always rooted in the overuse or inappropriate use of their strengths. For example, uh, let's just, for the sake of, you know, uh, transparency, I'll use myself. Um, I am really good at improvising stuff at the last minute and at, coming up with ways to say things or, you know, figuring out what to do in the moment. It is a great strength of mine. 
as as a consequence, um, I develop a habit of being a great procrastinator and putting stuff off to the last minute. And so when I work in teams with people who value planning and feel worried if there's not a clear plan and a draft and a, you know, that we're thinking things through ahead of the deadline, um, it creates friction because I'll put it off and then, you know, count on, I think in the, in the words of that great leadership coach, Bullwinkle, you know, <laughs> I'm going to pull a rabbit out of my hat or whatever. Uh <laughs> Right at the last minute, uh, Rocky would say, again, that trick never works. <laughs> but anyway, that, that's an overuse of that strength. Um, and and you see this with people who maybe their strength is that they're like super analytical and, and, and quick to judge. And that can be a wonderful advantage when you have to quickly assess something. But when overused, can can feel judgmental and exclusive of others in the process. Yeah, that's so important for all of us to think about in our um, exploration of empowerment. You know, where where does that strength become a weakness and how to be accountable for that? Because I think when you note it or you accept it or you even are awakened to it, you then have a chance to utilize the balance in that and maybe create a little more harmony or alchemy between the curse and the blessing. Yeah. That's right, and the strength and the and the gap or the blind side. And I suppose the corollary to that, and if we're thinking about how do we cultivate a little more leadership in our own lives, yeah, uh, especially in a time when you know we can feel uh, <laughs> depressed as a as a people uh, by what's happening around us in the in the DC. Uh, in our own lives, I think uh, paying attention to. Um, what a friend of mine once called the the platinum rule. I mean, so my one of my blind sides is because I'm really comfortable being direct and and intimate and asking people questions, assuming that they will be intimate back with me. And I I don't mean sexually. I just mean in the in the lovely definition of intimacy, which is that we can show up as ourselves completely and and have trust that others will accept us for who we are and not judge us. Hallelujah. Yes. Yeah. So. I show up with that assumption all the time, and and my blind side is that I, you know, apply the golden rule, which is you know do unto others as you know you would be done unto. Um, so it's fine for me. Uh, I, I learned recently that a friend that I've known for 35 years once used to really be freaked out by conversations I'd have and wouldn't understand why I'd be asking him how he's really doing, and he'd say I'm fine. I'd say well. Yeah, but I know you have young kids and things are challenging. Tell me more. You know, I know you guys had some financial challenges with the house. What's going on? How are you feeling about that? How are you handling it? And I would probe for this deeper level of intimacy and disclosure that he had no experience with in his life, right? And he took it as some kind of a probing for weakness, uh, which I would never have imagined somebody would have experienced it that way because of how I grew up and how I am. So... That's the weakness of the golden rule. The, uh, this colleague once said, the platinum rule is do unto others as they would be done unto. Mm. Which probably is a parable for leadership uh, as well as you know friendship and how we show up with people. You know, when you're describing the way that you meet people and speak to those that are in your world, I consider that love at the ultimate level. Like, 
I am so the same way in communication and I can't, it's only in my adult life, in my 50s in my adult life that I've come to understand that when people are really asked how they're doing or what's happening, often that does feel like you're probing into an area that is not necessarily what someone's comfortable talking about, but then I don't know the point of conversation. I mean, it, let's just meditate. Then let's not talk, because I, I and and I and and I struggle with that in dialogue with people because I cannot do the, you know, bullshit conversation. I don't I don't have any interest in it. So you're talking to me at a deep level right now when you just describe that. And so I guess what I'd like your help with is if that person you're talking to is feeling like you're trying to figure out where their weakness is when in fact I hear it as the opposite how do you then come around to a place that is comfortable or would that be an example where someone just can't delve deeply in dialogue right god so there's so much in there to figure out and unpack right I mean uh on the one hand like while I appreciate the caution about the platinum rule of do unto others as they'd be done unto, I can uh, I can apply it better in kind of organizational life than in uh, the expectation I have that people will be intimate and transparent with me, you know. Um, so I guess the second thing is because it's my blind side, I never had a I never had a clue for 35 years <laughs> that this guy felt that way about it, you know, because he would eventually come around and tell me things and. I guess the other thing that comes up in that example, Lore, is I guess play the long game. Because, you know, what he told me was it took him a decade or so to realize that I was probably one of the, you know, uh, a deeper ally as a friend. And that my goal in exploring how he was really doing was to figure out how I could be meaningfully helpful to him. Because mm. he finally got that, like, that's what I'm all about is you know, we're talking about things, we're explaining things so that I can be of help yeah. uh, or, you know, connect you with somebody or, you know, help you think about things in a helpful way that'll help you through a stuck point in your life. So, yes, uh, I think part of it is we have to make those decisions every day in every conversation about what are we noticing? Are we really talking about something that is about real life or are we uh you know saying words that lots of people say when they're not interested in actually being connected Mm, yep and and you know one thing i've learned and this was a great aha for me in this exact um discussion about candid dialogue that's honest is because i'm a coach as well I realized that maybe people felt that I was almost interviewing them more than showing my own courageous vulnerability. And so when my life blew up a few years ago, I just started being candid about that in dialogue with people that I trusted. And then I noted they would open up more readily. And then I I, I came to see that I wasn't showing enough of my my suffering in order to be able to have that dialogue with someone that's that naked. And so to be able to have the courage to do that, which I didn't even see as courage, 
then gave me a different window into why people feel so um, uh, insecure, maybe, or just scared to speak the truth of the suffering. The suffering, I mean, I I, want to get into this with you a little bit, um, but nothing beautiful comes without suffering. And I now get that. And intimacy and disclosure creates intimacy and disclosure. To your point, yeah. Alice, it's so, so, so true. And I feel like that's a choice I've made in how I show up. All my life has been to talk about what is a challenge for me or an issue for me. And when you do that, it shows up. I mean, the there's levels of thinking about it that way as leaders about um, if, if you're asking people questions and you're in a power or status position, right? Like a, a, we, for a couple of years, I, I was there was a client I was working with. Um, there was a firm. There's a company called Prezi. It's an amazing little presentation software company that is a you know zooming interface started by these three amazingly idealistic Hungarian entrepreneurs who truly believe that if you can connect ideas more clearly for people through better visual representation of ideas, if people understand ideas more clearly, the world will be a more peaceful and less violent place. Because if we understand things better and the connectedness between things, we'll be more peaceful. Um, and so I ended up in an, on the executive team there helping the company grow and head of strategy and people. And, you know, I had to remind myself that to the other people there, uh, I was in a position of power, even though I didn't feel it every day, right? And so if I talked about what I couldn't figure out or where I was stuck or what was challenging and, and then said, let's talk about where you might be stuck, people were so much more willing to talk about that, right? If I just started a conversation saying, hey, where are you stuck? What's going on? What's happening? Mm. Uh, some people would feel like, oh, I don't want to disclose too much because you're you know, in this power position. So on a personal level, that comes for me, the, you know, I, the journey we went through with our son who died three years ago in a motorcycle accident, um, but had had you know, struggled as a teen um, with, uh, you know, some, it was a big character of a person. And like a lot of big characters of people who, you know, are jumbling with uh, fears and excitement and charisma and hormones, uh, got into a fair bit of trouble as a teen, um, which he wrestled through, worked through, and then was on an amazing path to just coming into his own when he died which we could come back to. But what you were saying about disclosure and with others was what sitting, I was in a men's book group, which is, I grew up around all these women. I was raised by women. I was like, oh, a men's group. What a novel, interesting, weird thing. Okay, I'll go <laughs> spend some time with these men. And I remember sitting with these guys one time and just checking in, how is everyone doing? And it was sort of a, oh, you know, okay, fine, whatever, sort of updates on their careers or something. And I said, well, here's something that I've really been struggling with, which is, you know, my son was like not just using, but dealing marijuana and getting in trouble in these ways and doing these things. And I've been really stuck on that. I don't know how to be a effective father to him right now. And I disclosed that. And then the conversation in the room changed. And of the 10 people, 10 fathers in the room over the course of the next 30 or 45 minutes, it came out that, uh, seven of the 10 were struggling with issues with their kids. Like two of their daughters were bulimic. Uh, Three people had kids who were cutting or self-harm. 
uh, or struggling with depression. And that was such an important conversation to have. And it changed the relationships between these people to talk about this. And there's such power just being the first person to go there and open it up. Yeah. Yeah. And had you not opened that up about your son, Sam, then, you know, the conversation may have stayed really light, not very revelatory. And through that, I'm imagining you guys really were able to help each other and support each other with ideas that were useful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I just want to say to you that my heart holds your heart very deeply with the loss of a child. I mean, I I think that is just, I'm, I'm wanting to talk about that with you right now, because for many people listening, we, we can't imagine what that, what that suffering must be like. And you wanted to go back and talk a little bit about Sam and his ambition and his energy and his big personality. So I want to really ask you to tell us more. Yeah, well, uh, the loss of a child is, uh, for those who've gone through it, and it is an unimaginably horrific thing. Um, you know, it is a soul-rending thing. Um, and people who are your friends or who meet you I will often say, I can't imagine, and what we say back to them is, good, it's better that you don't. Um, You know, we had a son who was such a big personality and, you know, wrestling with himself, as a lot of teens do, and in a way that a lot of teen boys do, right? Uh, Challenging themselves with acts of, you know, daredevilness and uh, risk-taking, I think to, in his case, to try to prove things to himself, we realized years later, like uh, he was his way of dealing with his own fears would be to like jump directly into them, uh, which you know in in the end proved his undoing because he went like a, a month before graduating from the University of Montana with you know just really getting things aligned for himself and doing well and graduating on time and about to go off and go to China for a year. Uh, you just went too fast on a motorcycle, right? One risk too many. Um, and that was it. So uh, there's a lot of things you could talk about or unpack about that. I think for us, um, we we have to find ways to hold that person in our hearts, uh, and the I guess for us, there's lots of people who take it in different ways. And people who are religious would talk about how, you know, they'll see him in heaven or this sort of thing. And I, I don't, I don't personally believe in that kind of afterlife at all. I, I do think we're, you know, there's some spiritual energy that gets rejoined. I had a particular vision when I had to go, you know, look at him, look at his body, and kisses cold head on the forehead uh, I had the very visceral visual image of just billions of molecules of energy streaming back into space 
from him. Uh, was That was the um, experience I had in saying farewell to his physical body was uh, all that energy being put back out into the universe. Um, but I guess how we've tried to hold his death is it is the most goddamn clear example that we are all on an impermanent ride, right? Yeah. I mean, we will all die. And as smart as we are, and as much as we can say that to ourselves, uh, it is a shocking thing. I mean, part of, it is. it may sound weird, part of this, how I give myself some solace is, well, okay, he would have died. I will be dead. Uh, you know, in a, in 80 years, no one will be alive in the world for whom this has power or meaning. Um, so what do we do with it today? How do I hold my son's death today is, uh, for us, was captured or we took some solace and guidance. I suppose you could go at leadership from a, a question the poet Mary Oliver asks in one of her poems, which is, what will you do with your one wild and precious life. Mm. And we were surrounded by these 20-somethings, you know, his peers who had, of course, never experienced death. And we're in the middle of this bottomless grief hole. And then we realize, oh, actually, we have to comfort these other people, mm. which I suppose is helpful because it forced us to just not, you know, lie down in a coma, right? Yeah. Like, like oh, shit, we have, <laughs> we have work to do. And I guess we've spent a lot of our lives you know, trying to actually have this self-awareness and skills to engage on emotionally hard things. We never would have guessed it would be this emotionally hard, but here we go. And so we, I think, tried to talk to these other kids and our own daughter about what do you take from the death of a young person? And hopefully you take that the things that hold us back in life, we really need to look at and ask ourselves, if there's something I'm not doing because I'm afraid of looking stupid, how does that matter in in the context of would you care if you're dead, right? Yeah. Uh, or if you love someone and you're not telling them, or if you know there's things about yourself that you've found to be true about your identity that you haven't told other people or that you're afraid of. Like, if fear of embarrassment or fear is holding you back, and every day matters would you do something differently knowing that you might be dead? Mm, so, yeah. Or that you certainly will be one day. Uh, I don't, I have a super imperfect track record after three years of applying that in my own life. Um, you know, I think uh, both Terry, my, my uh, stellar partner and wife, and I uh, would say that we have probably, you know, medicated ourselves a fair bit with like you know more additional wine than we would have been drinking and uh additional food and yet we've really pushed ourselves to you know show up and help the organizations we want to help and engage with our friends and be fully present even though the grief wants to pull you toward uh as the victorian novels used to say taking to your bed yeah yeah. Well, I I feel so um, deeply, deeply connected 
to you and Terry and your daughter through just knowing what life gave you to work with and how that kind of loss can really put you into a very different mindset than you've ever, ever imagined. Um, my mother died when I was 16, and it's it's nothing like what I uh, can imagine losing a child is like. It was the opposite, me losing the parent. But, but I remember in that time when you said taking care of everyone else, I can remember that. They, they say in the brain, trauma is the one thing that doesn't get rewired over time. Like you, memory is so interesting. And I always think about the idea that memory is always moving and changing depending upon every moment that is now. But trauma does not have a shifting, changing um, visual in the brain when you go over it. And so I remember that weekend. It'll be uh, 39 years ago tomorrow and I remember that weekend that she was that she died as if it was yesterday. Yes. And I just can feel when you said that I was having this visceral memory from that weekend of people falling apart all around me and all of a sudden me being the strong one mm. in the in the house with people just sobbing and handing me casseroles and what are you going to do? You're 16. And, and, and all of a sudden my thinking, I have to take care of this person. This person's needs my strength right now. Um, (laughs) And, and honestly, when I, when I think about that, it's so interesting because I don't think I really started to allow myself to feel whatever that experience and event brought up for me in my whole life. It defined me so deeply, but I don't think I really started to accept those feelings around it until I was in my forties. So that's interesting for me to think about. And again, I go back to the word vulnerable, creative vulnerability, courageous vulnerability, really allowing myself to be the woman that's sobbing without a casserole and, and, and having that be okay. And what, Laura, what for you in your forties, uh, helped you get to that opening it up again? Oh, that's such a great question. And it, it just right away came through as raising children and feeling their vulnerability and respecting how I was such a little soldier in my in my youth and what it felt like to be able to give that warmth and vulnerable setting and atmosphere to a young child and have it be okay. And then that gave me this understanding of something I never had the opportunity to do. And so it opened up the doorway to do it even then and then that gave my children safety in a very emotional way that took nothing off the table for for discussions, tears, hysteria, yeah. fear, you know, everything that they would go through. It felt so healing to be able to say, let's just go through it. What is it? It's okay. And And then that healed my own heart from being so close to what that feels like to just be an open bleeding you know person with with an understanding that that's okay you know that too will change you will yes. you will learn so much from that from that grief and that grief has 
impacted me more than anything else, but it has also taught me and held me. And now that I can access it, it has freed me. (laughs) So it's so complicated and beautiful, but, but I hear you speaking and I just, I just want you to know that you give me a lot to learn in my life from what you're willing to share about your life. And that does go back to our full circle discussion about leadership and honesty and the T groups coming together to be honest and forthcoming, even if you weren't raised with a Marian uh, to guide you into that direct honest, vocal life, you can develop that. And that does start, I think, with vulnerability and truth. Yes, yes, yes. Amen to all that. I mean, and and your your listeners, you know, uh, tune in to try to explore and understand these questions. I feel like um, what comes out of the thread, one of the many things that comes out of this thread so far is we should all be part of the pro-duality party, Mm -hmm. uh, which is... You know, so much of what we just talked about of dealing with grief and trying to be present is about em- embracing duality. I-, I can be completely accessible uh, by grief. I can fall apart and be sobbing. And I can feel strength and resilience and faith in myself and my community and the universe, right? Um you know, you went through this where you were able to be uh, open up and be vulnerable and experience the uh, the the loss and notice the maybe you know excessive over rotation to being tough that you felt like you went to. Um, you can do both of those mm. at, at the same time, and I think you know when we're seeking out how to be empowered and you know embodied and self empowered and strong. I think sometimes when we go after that, people feel like then when they feel weak, it's a failure on the journey to feeling empowered. And uh, that's the gift we can give ourselves is that it isn't. Is Of course we are scared shitless or we don't know what we're doing and we haven't got a clue. And we can still feel empowered and bold and move forward and take steps. Oh, God, absolutely. In fact... I'm so in love with the word embodied. Um, I, I think about it often and it's it's what I teach. It's what I'm here to to learn. It is really allowing that truth of soul, mind, heart, the alignment of all of them to be whatever they are. And I'm even getting to the point where I believe that may be my own understanding of equanimity is to really just be as fully embodied as I'm capable of and then being able to take the silence and the pause when I'm not quite sure what that alignment is and I'm having a little detour, whether it be in the mind, the spirit, or the body, and to just take space, time, and silence to acknowledge that and then come back around. Yes. Yes, and that's so hard. I mean, we, we started off talking about, you know, the yes being integrated as a life journey. Uh, I think, like, getting some equanimity, uh, you know, uh, what if Karsten or somebody, Henningsen, I think, told me this example of equanimity is that idea that we don't have to react to things instantly in the moment. 
uh, God knows most of the executive coaching I've gotten about myself as a leader or that I give other people about themselves as leaders is about inserting a little more thought between stimulus and response. Uh, you know, somebody does something or says something in a meeting or at home, you know, and we react and very quickly, we're super fast. Um, and that idea that equanimity is putting a little more space between some dominoes that are lined up, right? <laughs> so that at least you have a moment to notice that one domino is about to hit the other yeah. instead of instead of it just hits automatically and knocks down a long row of dominoes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would, you know, what do great leaders do? They notice their reactions. They read the room. Uh, there's that extra, you know, give themselves the gift and realize it's their responsibility to take a moment to think about what are we trying to do? What's happening right now? How am I feeling about it? How are they feeling about it? What's, what's a thing we could do that would move this forward instead of just reacting? Mm, boy, is that big for me. I love that lesson, Toby. And I enjoy the thought of it being applied in a personal environment um, because I think really that's where we get to practice these leadership skills is at home with our beloveds, with our communities, with our neighbors, with our strangers, you know. And then wherever that then goes in the work world, the work world that you inhibit, I inhibit, all you listeners inhibit, it's benefit benefit, benefit, to just keep practicing. We call it a practice because it is that, and we can always do it differently the next time. So that's a great thing to think about a leader and what a leader does, and then how to take those skills, take those beautiful lessons and apply them in your life and all parts yeah. of your life, every single every single aspect of every breath you take. And, and you mentioned Karsten, one of my great teachers, and um, one of my great... Uh, one of my great guides. I just, I, I want to be in the presence before, before too long. I, I told you I was looking you up on the web and and following around, found this incredible video of you drumming. And then when you sent over your bio, I loved the bottom of the bio saying that Toby is a hiker, a drummer, a frisbee player, a traveler, applied improvisation student, and cook. He is quick-witted, funny, pushy, and bald. <laughs> So I want to be with you and Karsten and get some drums happening because I hear there's like great music that goes down when you guys are together and I want to be invited. You're invited, Laura. Okay, that's good. good. So we got to go soon, darn it. This felt so beautiful to talk to you. I want to do it again and I want everyone to know how to find you if they're interested in some coaching and executive training. What's the best way? Uh, there's our website, Fitch Associates, uh, plural.com. And uh, I'm Toby with an EY uh, at FitchAssociates.com. And the I guess the thing I would leave off with, Laura, that's such a massive topic. And if people are left like, what's one thing you could do? Man, notice more, spend more time with people that give you energy and give you a sense of uh, getting in touch with your best self. Um Likewise, show up in a way that pays attention to what are other people's best selves. And, you know, we got a lot of trauma on our minds today. How do we show up and help others focus on what's also positive while acknowledging the stuff that's hard? Mm. 
That's so beautiful, Toby, and it really does bring home my tagline for the show, which is that you complete you. And I want to thank you, Toby Fitch. You're beautiful and awesome and a great leader. Thank you. Such a pleasure, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 